This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today we bring you part two of my conversation with John Adams, Executive Director at Montana Free Press. If we were talking about something as, as important as electricity, water, the ability to heat your home, um, it wouldn't even be a question. We'd find a way to pay for it. And I think people are coming to realize that accurate, reliable, fact-based journalism is that important. John and I talk about the Montana Free Press model, the state of journalism in general, and its future here in Montana. So there's a public interest value to that. What is the business value? Well, with each one of those stories, uh, we have a Montana Free Press byline and a little exactly. tag at the bottom of the story that says this this story first appeared at montanafreepress.org. It was a bit of a marketing. Sure. Um, you get brand building from that, awareness. Yep. Brand awareness. Just get our name out there. Get as many people getting used to to seeing Montana Free Press. Sure. Hopefully, eventually being curious and saying, what's Montana Free Press? But that can only take you so far. And, you know, in two, in early 2020, we had, I think, four, I think there were three full-time staffers um, at the beginning of 2020. And we hired our first business hire just before March of 2020. Okay. At that time, we were averaging about nine to 10,000 website views per month. We had a few thousand uh, email newsletter subscribers. And then the pandemic hit. And we shifted gears pretty dramatically from just sort of publishing long form stories a couple of times a week to really focusing and drilling down on the pandemic. Sure. And, and trying to find answers to the questions that the public had about this pandemic. The first thing that happened when people started hearing rumors of lockdowns and, and you know, we started hearing about COVID dashboards and, you know, outbreaks in Seattle and, and you know, back east and and suddenly people are realizing that this is a real thing. And then once we had the shutdown and, and everybody was basically forced into their homes, that was a lot of time and anxious energy spent asking the internet for answers. And is it fair to say that at this time, you know, the for-profit journalism in the state of Montana is undergoing some consolidation and with that leads to you know fewer resources to go around in those news gathering organizations. Yet at the same time, you're kind of bulking up in the space and see an opportunity to kind of really gain share in being a trusted resource for information when this pandemic happens and people need information. I would love to say that it was a highly strategic, um, well thought out uh, decision to put all of our resources into covering the pandemic. Sure. There was a fortuitous kind of moment here where, you know, the curves kind of invert in a way. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I mean, there were a lot of journalists, um, many of whom are still working today that that were then and still are doing great journalism right. on all of these issues. Um, you know, this is not to say that Montana Free Press is, you know, replacing what we've, what we've had in, in local news. Okay. But, you know, there's only so much that these news uh, these newsrooms can do. I mean, they continue to shrink. I mean, it's no secret that every, every, every newsroom in the state has shrunk significantly over the last decade. That's just a fact. And yes, during the pandemic, a lot of those same news organizations that were, that were again, based on local advertising revenue 
when everything was shut down and people weren't going to restaurants and people weren't going to stores and people weren't spending money yeah. in local businesses, th- that advertising revenue dried up too. Um, and so a lot of those news organizations had to cont- you know, restrict even further. We didn't have a lot of operating cash on hand, but, but we figured this is a historic moment. This is a moment of complete uncertainty. And when people are living in a historic moment of uncertainty, they're anxious, they have questions, they want to know answers, and they're looking for a source of reliable information. And there was a plenty, as we know, plenty of, of disinformation and bad information out there. And so we really just doubled down and saying, look, we're gonna, we built a COVID dashboard. We built a daily COVID newsletter. We said, look, we're going to, at least once a day, we're going to provide the public with as much information as we can find, accurate information about what's happening with this pandemic. Sure. We also reached out and did an open call for freelancers throughout the state to basically reach out to us and pitch us stories about what's happening in your community. So we started getting freelance submissions from all over the state. And once what we saw was every time we published a story from one of these communities, our readership spiked. People wanted okay. to know what was happening in Lewistown. People wanted to know what was happening in Gardner. People wanted to know what was happening in Great Falls. And with that, did that spike in readership correlate to some degree with a, an increase in donor traffic? It did. It, did. Um, it, it absolutely did. We saw our readership go from about eight or 9,000, maybe 10,000 views per month to 90,000 views oh, wow. in, in, in March. Yeah. Uh, and then it continued to climb. And so we saw a significant increase in online um, readership. We saw a significant increase in the number of people signing up to get our daily newsletter. And then once we started building that audience, we started, we, it gave us the opportunity to tell that audience what our business model is, which is support our work and we will keep providing this, this quality journalism. And a lot of folks who got their um, COVID payments from the government who didn't need them um, sent them to us. Um, we, I can't, I've got a stack probably this high, uh, four inches high of, of people who said, uh, I don't need this money from the government. I'd rather give it to organizations like yours that are keeping us informed. You're able to really kind of capitalize on this moment and provide a, a great service to the public, but also it, it, it elevates the profile of your organization, um, probably provides some sort of financial stability. Sort of bring us up to current day. How did that moment in the pandemic sort of lead to where you're at today? As the pandemic was growing overseas and then coming over to the States, and as, as this this news story was, was becoming not just sort of a, a footnote on the nightly news, but becoming sort of the story. Yeah. We had already had several different initiatives in motion. We were we were working on building out our our membership program. Um, you know, get, being much more intentional about how we grow our membership. And for us, a member is somebody who donates to us in a given year. Okay. So we we were trying to figure out, you know, how can we really do a better job of of building out this membership so that we're giving the our audience what they want from us. Not necessarily in terms of content. In, uh, you know, we. We think we're kind of experts in in the, in the news, but how do they want to get it? You yeah, know? and can you share a little bit about that membership in terms of like how many members do you have? Is it cyclical in nature? I would say that a significant percentage of our membership, probably in the neighborhood of anywhere from fifteen to twenty five percent, are out of state. Okay, uh, a lot of folks who just care about Montana. They, yeah, they they've been here. They they used to live here. Whatever, but we're we're approaching four thousand members now. Great. Um, our average donation, I think, is around 120 to 130 dollars per year. 
Um, so roughly 10 bucks a month is kind of the average, um, 10 to 15 bucks a month. And, you know, we were really working on building that out in a way so that when you come to our website, you know, if you're already a member, we're not constantly asking you to become a member. Right. Right. And there's some technology that has to, to happen there. So there was a technological component to the website that was kind of underway. Uh, we were in the in the process of launching a, a completely rebranded um, organization with a new website, a new brand, uh, a, a new brand logo, and really a, a top to bottom focus on reader user experience. So when you're on our website, we want it to be fast. We want it to look clean. Yep. We want it to work on whatever device you're using. We don't want you to be distracted by all kinds of you know bells and whistles. We just want it to be a real straight to the point, functional, um, clean, fast user experience. So those things were underway. And in fact, <laughs> we were supposed to launch the new website in April and that got pushed back a little bit because of the pandemic and yep. you know everything got pushed back. But we launched a new website around that time. And we were also, um, there was an organization, is an organization called the American Journalism Project, which I'm sure some of the readers have heard about over the years. And this was a new national philanthropic endeavor to fund local news at a high level to work uh, to give those organizations the resources that they needed to build a model of sustainability in nonprofit news. Okay. I was very eager to get some of that funding because I felt like that was the kind of catalytic business oriented funding that we needed to hire the kinds of people that I knew we needed to have in the back end, not the journalism, not the editorial room, not the newsroom, but in the business office to really build out uh, a sustainable operation into the future. And I had been on the AJP website on a regular basis reading their sort of, this is what an AJP grantee looks like. Okay. And it was a basically a, a rubric, commitment to transparency, that you're thinking about sustainability and audience growth, that you're, um, you know, that you're considering all the different ways that you can build out a revenue model that is resilient and not prone to, you know, any particular economic factor. Yep. You know, the, one of the first questions that people always ask about when it comes to a, a, a donor-funded news organization is this, this sort of notion that you've got some rich individual who gives, you know, a huge sum of money to sure. an organization, and then they're kind of calling the shots, right? Like right. You're, you're pushing their agenda. And early on, that was certainly one of the concerns that folks had with the Montana Free Press, including my former board chair, Chuck Johnson. May he rest in peace. Chuck, when I first approached him after we had both been laid off from our jobs and I said, look, I want to start this thing. I'd love for you to be a part of it. He was highly skeptical of it, you know, because he had looked and seen in other parts of the country where there were these sort of single donor or agenda-driven nonprofit, I put in air quotes, news organizations that were funded by think tanks and institutions that had a very clear political agenda. Or even the perception of editorial influence, which can be a problem in, in journalism in general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people are skeptical of money, right? right. Rightfully so. Right. And my attitude was, if we're transparent about our funding, if we tell everybody where we get every single penny from, uh, in which we do on our website... Um, we we have a disclosure page where we disclose on a regular basis right down to you know the the membership level first and last name of our donors we're transparent with our funding and that's also one of the reasons why I wanted membership to be a significant piece of our funding pie if if individual donors who are giving five ten fifteen however many dollars per month to Montana Free Press 
Uh, if we have enough of them and they can they can be a consistent, stable source of cash flow for the organization, that also helps to insulate us from being too reliant on one major funder. Sure. Yeah. I will say that, you know, our policies are very clear and we've told most of the time we don't even have to tell donors this because they already get it, um, that they have no opportunity to influence editorial. There's a strict firewall between our newsroom and, and our and our revenue department in terms of um, the work that we do with major donors and foundations. That being said, um, you know, certain foundations may have an interest in funding a certain area of coverage. So we may have funders that say, we'd like this money to be spent on environmental reporting, or we'd like this money to be spent on healthcare reporting. Okay. Um, so we'll take money from foundations and, and say, we're going to apply that to a particular beat, but they don't get to have any influence over what's on that beat. Yeah. How do you make choices there? I mean, if a donor has a dog in the fight and they're asking you to cover a certain beat, how do you ensure that, um, how do you create that firewall, I guess is what I'm asking. The way we do that uh, is the same way that newspapers have been doing that forever. Okay. Right. I mean, it's this, when I was at the Missoula Independent, everybody knew who our biggest advertiser was because they they purchased the back page of every single issue of the sure. Missoula Indian. That was Rock and Rudy's. That didn't mean that we didn't occasionally cover Rock and Rudy's. Now, Rock and Rudy's, I, as far as I know, wasn't uh, on a regular basis trying to influence local government policy. Uh, but, you know, the same thing goes for car dealerships or hospitals or what have you. And can those giant uh, advertisers in for-profit newspapers have an influence over editorial? Absolutely. Will the readership know about it? Probably. Right. My attitude is if we have, a, if we're transparent about our funding and we're transparent about our policies, our editorial policies, and we put that out there for readers to, to consume and to read, um, they can make a judgment for themselves whether they think an individual donor is impacting our editorial decision-making. Um, internally, we have uh, reporters you know, occasionally write emails talking about their work um, in fundraising emails. Uh, what we don't do is, is sit down with uh, major donors and individual reporters. Um, there's a strict, you know, major donors do not have access to our newsroom. Okay. Have you had to say no to a donor before? I've had donors who have asked for their donation to be anonymous. Mm. Um, and we have told them kindly that we can't accept anonymous donations, right. uh, that we hold the people that we cover to a standard of transparency that we're going to apply to ourselves. And usually when we do that, they're, they're good with that. The reason most donors don't want to be disclosed isn't because they don't want people to know that they're donating to the free press. It's because they don't want other people calling them up and asking for money. Right, right. So that's the that's the reason most donors don't want their name on a donor wall. But once we explain to them how important transparency is, uh, we don't have problems. I've had one person that I can recall in the history of the organization who basically attempted to use their, their donation to the Montana Free Press uh, for quid pro quo. They wanted something. And I said, we don't do that. And um, I got a much smaller donation than uh, than we were asking for. Okay. And that's fine. And yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's a better outcome for you. And that's why we want to have a diversified revenue portfolio so that we're not beholden to any one funder. We'll be back to my conversation with John Adams after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. 
Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with John Adams of Montana Free Press. And are there any other sources of revenue other than, well, you mentioned this grant opportunity a few moments ago, so you probably have some grant funding in the revenue mix. Oh, yeah. Uh, We have a significant amount of grant funding. Right now, our revenue pie is basically in thirds. Okay. So about a third of it comes from those individual donors. About a third of it comes from institutional philanthropy. Um, These are major foundations that give large amounts of money to all kinds of uh, charitable activities. Right. And then about a third of it comes from those those wealthy individuals who uh, make donations for any number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's for tax benefits. Sometimes it's... uh, you know, a lot of times it's because they're just really passionate about the things that they that they support. Um, and journalism is increasingly becoming one of those things that people feel uh, compelled to support. Um, and so we're about a third, a third, a third membership, major donors and philanthropy. So, John, in our remaining time, I'd love to pull the lens back and get a sense for some of your thoughts about the industry in general. It seems like at the national level, there are tremendous rewards to polarization of your of your coverage right like catering to a liberal audience catering to a conservative audience how do you view that trend and then and uh, assuming you're trying to work against it with your organization how, how do you do that yeah I mean it's a really troubling trend you yeah know, I, I mean there's no shortage of outrage <laughs> right um, and outrage sells you mm-hmm. know when people are angry when people are frustrated when people feel that they're not being heard, you know, they tend to go to places where they feel themselves represented, whether that's MSNBC on cable news or Fox on yep. cable news. Um, you know, there's just there's or, you know, various Facebook groups or a curated Twitter feed or whatever it might be. You know, opinions and outrage uh, have been really sort of driving a lot of the national discourse around the news. But meanwhile, most people just want the facts, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, flipping on the cable news at at night is easy, right? Like sitting down and looking for reliable sources of information that can actually give you the facts without some kind of political spin or or agenda-driven motive, um, that's hard. That's a lot of work. And so what we're trying to do at the Free Press is create a space where like, look, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a Green whatever your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter if you don't care about politics at all. It doesn't matter if you're a barista or a farmer or a ranch hand. The things that are happening in Helena, the things that are happening in your local county governments, those things matter to you. They affect you. They affect whether or not you have clean drinking water. They affect whether or not you have roads that aren't full right. of potholes. You know, I remember doing this. One of the biggest stories I did for the Great Falls Tribune was about the muddy roads uh, in rural Montana that let, that were muddy because of the missile silos from Mal- Malstrom Air Force wow. Base. Those things matter, right? Like a muddy road might sound like no big deal to a statewide audience, but to the people in that community whose cars are being covered in this stuff and they're spending hundreds of dollars to wash their cars every month. I mean, that's a real, they're getting it on their tractor equipment, sure. all this stuff. That stuff matters, you know? So what we're trying to do is create a news organization where people, regardless of where what issues matter to them, where they are in the political spectrum, that they can trust that Montana Free Press is going to present news and information that they can use. 
that without spin, without bias, without an attempt to have them think a certain way or act a certain way. So that flows, I assume, throughout your, not only your editorial process, but your decisions about hiring. Talk about those sorts of policies. Journalists and how they interact with the public through places like Twitter or X or whatever have been the source of controversy in the past. How do you kind of view that space and where reporters are, are engaging with the public directly? Some of it is certainly in policy. We do have a social media policy. Yep. We do have, you know, we, we expect a certain level of uh, professionalism. But, you know, our reporters know what their job is. You know, our reporters understand how important those perceptions are. Our yep. reporters understand that, you know, regardless of what their own personal biases might be on a story, it is their job and it is our expectation that they are going to interrogate their own biases through the course of their reporting. So that means if you go into a story with a particular hypothesis about what might be at the other end, and you come up against facts along the way that that challenge that hypothesis or turn it on its head, that you follow those facts and not your own bias. And I'm not saying that's easy, and I'm not saying that every reporter does it all the time with absolute precision. Uh, But, you know, I think when you're genuinely working towards that ideal – on a consistent basis, and you have editors who are enforcing that those policies and those ideals, that that is over time where you can build trust. So you may have people who read a, a certain reporter and, and kind of, you know what that particular reporter's bias is based on what they cover, the language they use and the way they cover it. Sure. And those types of things. But you might, and you might not even agree with that person's bias, but you at least see that that person in every story is seeking out the truth and looking to represent all of the voices that have a stake in that issue. Maybe not all of them, but at least as many as we can. And I think if people see their perspective reflected in the accounted for, it doesn't necessarily have to have the, the, the like, you know, it doesn't uh, have to be equal. endorsed necessarily, yeah, but at least accounted for, okay. um, you know, I think people recognize that, okay, this person, I might not agree with them, but I don't feel like they're trying to twist my arm. I mean, you could argue that that's led to problems with like climate reporting, for example, where it gets often portrayed as a two-sided issue when, you know, if you believe the scientific community, it is overwhelmingly a decided issue. So an an issue like that, how do you, you know, the both sides-ism, how do you kind of navigate topics like that where the facts would indicate that, you know, one side has the right story? Facts are facts, right? I mean, you have facts and then you have um, opinions or you have people who try to uh, manipulate the truth through other means. And, you know, part of it comes from having reporters um, and editors who can have longevity, who can have the time to build expertise and build trust with audiences. Um, We've had so much turnover in our industry for so long that nobody ever gets the opportunity to become an expert. Right. You know, where is the next, you know, Chuck Johnson who covered politics for almost 50 years in this state as a reporter? Um, Where are those people going to come from? I mean, the reason Chuck, and I keep coming back to Chuck because I think, you know, he was definitely one of the most trusted voices in the state, um, universally, uh, practically. Um, He's a journalist, so I'm sure he's got plenty of people who don't like him. But but universally, um, Chuck was um, recognized as a trust, a reliable voice of truth, and that's because he could do it for so long. Yeah. And over over the course of time, you see, you know, there may be stories here and there that that you know reveal a, a, a slant or a bias, but over the course of time, 
you see, you know, fair, balanced, accurate reporting that is reliable. We are hu- journalists are human. They make mistakes. They're they're not perfect. That's why we have corrections that we have to run from time to time, sure. you know, et cetera. But I think if you really prioritize the fact gathering, the truth telling, uh, the objectivity and, and, and make that central to everything you do day in and day out, that over the course of time, you can build that trust with large audiences. Turn the clock forward for our remaining time here. I mean, you've been able to get this organization not only off the ground, but to a point where it's arguably thriving and providing a tremendous value and you have a sustainable revenue model. Are we experiencing a shift in journalism? Is this the new model for you know, local rural journalism or journalism in general? What are your views on that? I think we're in a major period of transition yeah. in this country, um, in this on this planet. I mean, a year ago, nobody was talking about AI. Now you can't turn around without reading about AI and its yeah. potential implications for the future. We don't know where that's going to go. We don't know how disruptive that technology is going to be. But- that was the internet 25 Chat years GPT ago. has not been feeding me these questions, by the way. <laughs> Maybe they'd be better questions if it were, though. But I think we're in a we're in a we're in a huge transition, um, and and there's no there's no denying the fact that newspapers as we know them have known them for hundreds of years in this country are not going to be around in the same way 10, 15 years from now. Um, I think print journalism will be a niche product for elite people who have the resources to pay for it. Yeah. But in a, in a digital world where everybody is connected down to their refrigerators, digital is the way that people are going to get their mm-hmm. information. I think nationally and even globally, there's become an understanding that this new, this journalism in this new era can't be supported uh, the way that it was in the past. So I do think that some mix of philanthropy and local support and public support of news um, is is here to stay, uh, at least in the near to, to midterm. And I think, you know, as there's a growing understanding of just how critical the connection between access to accurate journalism about your community, about your state, and the connection to how things function as a society, as, as more and more people make that connection, I think there's going to be more and more public support for this. So my hope is that if we talk about this five years from now, um, we're talking about uh, nonprofit news organizations from the tiniest little community of Montana to organizations like Montana Free Press that are statewide and everything in between, um, having more local support from readers who are willing to pay you know, $10, $15 a month for the content and advertisers or sponsors or local individuals with means who's, who understand how important that resource is. I mean, if we were talking about water here, if we were talking yeah. about something as, as important as electricity, water, the ability to heat your home, um, it wouldn't even be a question. We'd find a way to pay for it. Sure. And I think people are coming to realize that accurate, reliable, fact-based journalism is that important. Uh, in a functioning society, and so I, I think we're, I think we're on the cusp of um, of, of a major change n- nationally and, and here in Montana uh, that's here to stay. Well, John, I would welcome that opportunity in five years to have that conversation. I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. It's fascinating to me. Hopefully, to our listeners, thank you for what you and your colleagues are doing at the Free Press. I think it's a tremendous service, and I'd be grateful that you took the time to share uh, the story with us. It's my pleasure, and let's not wait five years. 
Sounds very good. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.